in John, just to uh, remind us where we are, um, you have the times among the Jews, the three greatest feasts, the three great gatherings uh, that the Jews celebrated in Jesus' day. That would be Passover and Pentecost and Tabernacles. And we have seen Jesus' uh, interaction in those uh, particular feasts and, and gatherings and celebrations. Um, of course, Tabernacles would be the one that is the, the, the greatest party in terms of atmosphere, and Passover would by far be the most solemn. Uh, he's about to enter into Jerusalem for his final Passover. Now, you may or may not be familiar with uh, what Passover celebrated. It actually goes all the way back to uh, the book of Exodus, and uh, it was God taking care of his precious people. Here's what he did in order to deliver them out of slavery and ultimately to the land of promise. He said, this is how I'm going to deliver you. I want you to go inside your homes and uh, I want you to kill a lamb. And I want you to make that your supper that night. And there were specific instructions for that. But what I want you to do is to, to take the blood of that lamb and I want you to put it on the doorposts of your home. Because on that night, the angel of death is going to pass through. And if he sees that blood on your doorpost, he will pass over. And those who by faith have done that will be preserved. They will be safe. And ultimately, they will be freed. And ultimately, they will be taken to the promised land. But those who choose not to do that, death will come. And so that's what uh, was going on. And, and so every year they celebrated that. And when I say celebrate, there would be that aspect of it. But it was certainly a solemn time as they were looking forward to an ultimate deliverance when the Messiah would come and would protect his people once again and ultimately delivered them to the land of promise. This was the year. They didn't understand it, as we'll see in a moment. But this was the year that ultimate deliverance came among them in the name of Jesus. So let's read about uh, that entry. We are in uh, John chapter 12. We're going to pick up with the ninth verse. 
It says, when the large crowd of the Jews learned that Jesus was there, they came not only on account of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. So the chief priest made plans to put Lazarus to death as well. Because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. The next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. His disciples did not understand these things at first, But when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. The crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to bear witness. The reason why the crowd went to meet him was they heard he had done this sign. So the Pharisees said to one another, you see that you're gaining nothing. Look. The world has gone after him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's bow together. Lord, once again, we, we enter into this passage that for many is familiar, they've heard it many times. But Lord, you saw fit to record it, to preserve it. There's a reason for that. Will you be our teacher today? Will you speak not, not just to our minds, but to our hearts, our hearts that are in need of Jesus And we pray this in his precious name. Amen. So here they are in in Jerusalem. Now, just to give you an idea uh, of the, the kinds of crowds, the low estimates for Jerusalem in that day uh, in terms of how many not just lived there but would flood into Jerusalem, the low estimates are around half a million. And then you have Josephus who said there were as many as two and a half million. He's a historian. But there are many that said, uh, Josephus, he... He inflated his numbers. You know, he was, he was the pollster of that day, you know, or the, the one that's supposed to give the count to encourage everybody. So figure it somewhere in between it, and yet understand these were huge crowds that we're talking about. 
So you can imagine there were all kinds of people in those crowds. And that's what we're going to, to look at today. Because this, this passage gives us at least a little bit of insight. It can't possibly tell you all of the motives of all of the people that were there. But we see there were categories of people. And so I want us to, to take note of what it says. There were those, first of all, who were there out of curiosity. Uh, verse 9 says, when the large crowd of the Jews learned that Jesus was there, they came not only on account of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. So who wouldn't want to see a guy that was raised from the dead and the guy who raised him? So we see that, that there are those kinds of people in the crowd. And verse 17, the, the crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to bear witness. The reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they heard he had done this sign. So here's what you have in the crowd. There are those who saw Lazarus raised from the dead. Those who had... Uh, either stayed around in, in Bethany after Lazarus was raised from the dead, or maybe were from Bethany. Or maybe when they heard that Jesus had come back, they came back to Bethany in order to, uh, to be around and to, to see what else is going on. Then you have some that are joining him along the way. Pilgrims, in all likelihood that we're either heading into Jerusalem or maybe uh, camping outside the city. And then you have another mass of people, maybe who uh, were permanent residents of Jerusalem. So you've got all of these, and they're all rushing out to, to join what's going on. And the word had spread among the pilgrims that the one who raised Lazarus is coming. The miracle worker is coming. A number of years ago, uh, I was working in uh, a warehouse in the federal building <clears throat> in St. Louis, Missouri, while I was in college and seminary. Next to the uh, federal building was uh, a, a municipal auditorium, Keel Auditorium. It's a where they would hold big meetings and opera and various things like that. One night I was, uh, I was working overtime. I was the only one left in, in the warehouse. And, uh, and next door <clears throat> at the auditorium, they were having uh, a huge meeting. And it was Catherine Kuhlman. Some of you recognize that name. A lot of you wouldn't. At the time... She was perhaps the most famous faith healer in the whole world. She literally traveled the world wherever she went. Um, uh, people would pack auditoriums and stadiums and, and so on. She had her own TV show uh, and so on. So uh, I kind of peeked out and I saw dozens of people with wheelchairs coming to this, uh, this meeting that she was going to have, hoping for a miracle. And I could actually see 
<clears throat> the stage entrance. And so every few minutes I would go out just to see if her, her limousine or however she was going to get there uh, pulled up just to get a glimpse of, of Catherine Kuhlman. Now here's the thing. I never would have paid to go see her. Uh, I didn't agree with her teaching or her theology. I wouldn't even watch her on TV. But because of the opportunity, I was just curious. And I wanted to get a glimpse of her if I could. That's the kind of thing we're seeing here with at least a number of the people that were in this uh, huge crowd, these throngs of, of people that were uh, there when Jesus entered into Jerusalem. But I can assure you that simply being curious about Jesus is far from being a trusting, saving relationship with him. It's not enough. If that's where you find yourself today, it's a start, but it's not enough. Now, there was another group at the triumphal entry as well. There were those that were looking for earthly benefits. Look at verse 13. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, uh, crying out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. So these palm branches uh, would be carried uh, by processions, uh, attending kings, victorious generals. Uh, the same thing happened when Solomon entered Jerusalem on a donkey at, at his ascent to the throne. And so they're yelling out, Hosanna, which means save now. Save us now. And they were quoting Psalm 118, <coughs> 25. Save us, we pray, O Lord. O Lord, we pray, give us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Now, Psalm 118 to the Jew in, in that day was the equivalent to, uh, in the United States, hail to the chief. Or uh, in England, uh, God save the queen. You know, it was, it was reserved for when the Messiah comes. And so they knew it. That's what we sing. That's what we say to this one who is, is going to, to save us. Save us now, we beg you. Now here's the thing. Only, only John records <coughs> that they uh, wave palm branches. Why that detail? Whenever there's a detail like that, you've got to ask that that question. I mean, because every every Palm Sunday, we I mean, we call it Palm Sunday, and and uh, we that's always a part of the decoration and and so on. So you'd think it was much more prominent, but it's only particularly here in John. Here's what palm branches meant at that time. First of all, they had nothing to do with Passover. 
So they wouldn't have had palm branches already. They went to the trees and they, they cut them down. At least for a couple of hundred years, palm branches had been the general symbol of Jewish nationalism. It was all about the country. It was all about being Jewish. It was all about being Israelites. It was even on some of their money. It was the emblem uh, for a conqueror. So for them, what they were doing here was really putting together, uh, conflating the divine mission and national mission. And they were putting them side by side when they viewed their Messiah. By the way, mixing up nationalism of any country and Christianity is always a mistake. Even if it's a wonderful country, we don't want to mix up a love for a country with a love for Christ and the kingdom. What happens typically and historically is that when that happens, Christianity gets watered down. It loses its truth and its distinctiveness. So that's always a caution. But that's what was going on here. They were, they were looking for someone who would deliver them as uh, the, the, the nation of Israel, deliver them from the Romans that were oppressing them. So they were looking for, how's this guy going to personally help me? And we've talked about the dangers of the health and wealth gospel. By the way, Catherine Kuhlman was an early health and wealth gospel person. We've talked about those dangers. But that's basically what you see with this. I want Jesus because he will uh, make my country free is what some were there for. There's a third group, and that is a group that's just basically... Uh, confused. Uh, uh, Jesus' disciples, think about them. They're caught up in uh, the excitement. Likely, they were actually worshiping him, which if you look at it outwardly, you'd say, that's great. They're, they're getting it. They're finally uh, totally jumping on board. Look at verse 16, though. It says, his disciples did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified... So when it talks about him being glorified, that'd be after the crucifixion, after he's put in the tomb, after he is resurrected, and when he ascends to heaven. So when he was glorified, then they remembered these things had been written about him and had been done to him. So at this point, they're just getting caught up in the frenzy of the crowd, just like others there. But John makes it clear they didn't get it. It looked like they got it if you were just looking 
from the outside, but they really didn't. They didn't have real understanding. And then there were those that were basically uh, rebelling against Jesus, verse 10. So the chief priests made plans to put Lazarus to death as well, because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. So what started out as a, a murder plot of one man, Jesus quickly, Jesus, um, that, that plot quickly expanded to include Lazarus. Verse 18, the reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they heard he had done this sign. So the Pharisees said to one another, you see that you're gaining nothing. Look, the world's gone after him. So they're frustrated that he seems to, to have such crowds following him. Now remember last week, they were frustrated because they were afraid that they were going to lose their position. They were going to lose their power. And, and so their motives were revealed. And here they're saying things are getting out of hand. They, they couldn't seem to, to stop him. And by the way, they were right. But they thought they couldn't stop him from gaining popularity. But popularity wasn't ever his goal. That wasn't his mission. His mission was going to be accomplished. When they said the world's gone after him, they had no idea how right they would be. He didn't come to save this tiny little Middle Eastern country. That wasn't his purpose. He came to save his people from every tribe and nation in all of his creation. And that's what he was going to do. Luke 19 says, and, and, and some of the Pharisees in the crowd, this is a parallel passage, some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, teacher, rebuke your disciples. He answered, I tell you, if they were silent, the very stones would cry out. So let's get the real picture. Jesus is saying, they're, they're saying, rebuke your disciples, make them be quiet. He's saying, look, if, if I tell them to be quiet, the stones are going to cry out. And it doesn't go on to say this, but he could have said, and then if you tell me to make the stones be quiet... The trees and the mountains and the moon and the sun and the stars will cry out because my time has come. It hasn't been my time. But my time has come and God's plan will not be defeated. One more thing here. Verse 12. The next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem, so they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it's written, Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. 
This is a quote from Zechariah some 500 years earlier. Only Jesus fulfilled all of the prophecy for the Messiah. It says he's, he's riding on a donkey. That symbolism would have been obvious to all of them, maybe not as obvious to us. They were looking for a war hero. Now, donkeys are not war horses. Let's just put it that way. Unless you have a really lame army, you know. (laughs) So he gets on the donkey. And Zechariah fleshes out the metaphor. He actually says, he comes to you lowly and mounted on the foal of a donkey. Now, I haven't personally experienced that, but it's a humble look. But it's also a peaceful look. It's not a stallion or a horse pulling a chariot. So here is Jesus, the fulfiller of prophecy, and we've seen the first part fulfilled here. Listen in in him riding this donkey. Listen to what Zechariah went on to say. He said, he will speak peace to the nations and his rule shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. Now, how's that happen? Well, on two levels. On a personal level and on a universal level. When you trust in Jesus Christ alone, for your eternal life. He offers a peace that is beyond all human understanding. Now when I say that, don't be confused by what the world tries to say peace is. It doesn't mean that, that if you come to Christ that immediately your life, all turmoil will be gone. That would be the health and wealth gospel if I promised that. In fact, I've known many that have come to Christ and their troubles began. That can be part of it. So what is that peace then? It doesn't mean that all turmoil will go out of your life. It means that whatever is going on in your life, there is peace with God. And that's the ultimate peace. There is his presence, which means peace, which gives endurance, which gives perseverance, steadfastness, not lack of turmoil, 
But take courage because he's overcome the world. And that's a taste of what is to come. That's the personal level. And then there's the universal level. It's in the future. When Jesus comes back. Here's what it says in Revelation 19. Then I saw heaven opened. I want you to compare it to what those people saw coming from Bethany. Jesus on the foal of a donkey. This is what we will behold. Heaven opened and behold a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True and in righteousness he judges and makes war. The next time he enters it will be on a stallion And that war will be for those who are not his. But for those who are his, it will then mean lack of turmoil and ultimate peace forever and ever because he shall reign forever and ever. Let's pray. Hallelujah, Lord. We give you all praise. And I just can't wait for that. So many are so weary of this fallen world. And all its ravages from disease to destruction to disunity to hatred to violence. Thank you that it will not always be this way, but that you will make all things new. Lord, will you give us faith to trust in you alone? We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.